We'll take our text this morning from just one verse that was read in the scripture reading. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So much, of course, regarding the Christmas season and the celebrating that we do uh, centers around the birth of Christ, and well, it should. That was one of the most momentous events in human history, for sure. And it's important we recognize the birth of Christ, but the Christmas message goes far deeper than just the account of Jesus being born in a manger. You know, as verse 21 tells us, Christ came with a mission in mind. It was a search and rescue mission. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There's some words to a song that came out a few years ago. I've heard a couple different versions. I've heard an a cappella version and also a group singing it. But it's entitled, It's About the Cross. But I will share just a few words of this song. I think it pretty much encapsulates the message of Christmas. It says, It's not just about the manger where the baby lay. It's not all about the angels who sang for him that day. It's not all about the shepherds or the bright and morning star or shining star. It's not all about the wise men who traveled from afar. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. It's about the cross. Another line to the song says, The beginning of the story is wonderful and great, but it's the ending that can save you, and that's why we celebrate. It's about God's love nailed to a tree. It's about how every drop of blood that flowed from him when it should have been me. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. It's about the cross. You know, God's plan of salvation always required a sacrifice for sin. Since the beginning when man fell in the Garden of Eden and they disobeyed the Lord and the human race was plunged into sin, God put a plan in place that man could be redeemed and reconciled to God, but it required a blood sacrifice. It even tells us, In Leviticus, it says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. All of those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to that one perfect sacrifice that would be found in Jesus Christ. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs, all of those things were just a foreshadow of that sacrifice which was to come. Of course, God in His foreknowledge knew that man would need to have a way to be redeemed and reconciled to God. And the Word of God tells us that Jesus Christ was that Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. Hebrews 10.4 tells us, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. In the same chapter, verse 1 says that the law was a shadow of good things to come. Again, it was all a type and a shadow of 
pointing to that perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus was born to die. He came to be that sacrifice, to pay that penalty for our sins. And of course, we know that sacrifice required a cross. You know, the cradle would be incomplete without the cross of Jesus Christ. And of course, when we think about the cross of Christ, his death would be incomplete and meaningless without the resurrection. Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians. He said, if Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. He let us know that we would remain in our sins. All those who died trusting in Christ, believing they would one day inherit eternal life, would be perished and they would perish and be lost. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. In other words, what he was saying there is that life is sacrifice, it's self-denial and living for others. If that's all there was and there was no hope beyond the grave, we would be most miserable. If Jesus Christ had died on the cross, our hopes would have died with him. But then verse 20 says, But now is Christ risen from the dead. Not only did Jesus taste death for every man, but he conquered death. Because he lives, we can live also. We can have that hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. God's perfect plan of salvation was always in place, but it was implemented and put into motion with the birth of Jesus. John 1, 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Do you ever stop and just meditate upon that fact? What an awesome, incredible thought. If you think about that, that God would become a man. God always wanted to have a relationship with His children, but of course we know because of sin there in the garden, that relationship was severed. And there was a gulf created between man and God. And because of that sin and that gulf, man could never reach to where God was, but God could reach down to man. Man could never become God or even become like God in a sinful state, but God could become a man. A perfect sinless man, but a man... Nonetheless, the Word was made flesh, dwelt among us. You know, because of Christ, God in human form, we can understand the nature of God. We can understand and know and experience the love and compassion and the forgiveness, the goodness of God, the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ, His Son. We can know how to live a life pleasing to the Lord, Again, by looking at Jesus' example and following in His footsteps and obeying His words, we can live a life that pleases the Lord. Jesus Himself said, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. If you receive Me, you receive Him that sent Me. Because God became a man, 
Because He came in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled back to God. That word reconcile means to be put back in a right relationship with God the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. You know, the wonder isn't just in the fact that Jesus came to earth at all, but in how He came. Not only did He come as a man, He came as a little tiny baby. Think about that. God, the Creator of the universe, the One who breathed into us the breath of life, took on the form of a little tiny baby, helpless, dependent entirely upon His earthly parents, vulnerable to all of the things in society and in life. That's how God came. It's been said, lots of babies become kings, but there's only one king that became a baby. It was Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what He did. He laid aside His priestly garments, wrapped Himself in human skin, and He entered the world by the way of Bethlehem. You know, when I think of God, I don't often think of God as humble. I don't think any of us really consider God Humble, there's no reason why God would ever have to be humble. God is God. He's the creator of the universe. He doesn't answer to anybody or any higher authority than himself. His ways are perfect. His plans are perfect. He doesn't make himself accountable to anyone. And yet you think about how he came and the way in which he came, it really is amazing. If you ponder that and think about it, it's a little overwhelming It tells us that for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Of course, he wasn't speaking about material possessions and temporal things, but spiritual riches. You know, in order to show us the fullness of the Father's love, Christ was willing to make the complete sacrifice, the full sacrifice He was willing to start from infancy all the way to adulthood. One old theologian said, how could we follow his footsteps as a man if we hadn't seen him crawl as a child? Jesus didn't bypass anything on his way to the cross. Hebrews 2, verse 17 and 18. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him that to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. That word succor means to go to the aid of, to help, or to relieve. Maybe you've been grief-stricken, heartbroken, and you've told somebody, and they may make the comment offhandedly, well, I know how you feel, but they really don't. But when Jesus says, I know how you feel, he knows exactly how you feel. He's a high priest, touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Jesus Christ himself, the creator in human flesh, subjected himself to the same rigors of life, He knew what it was like to be weary and tired. Jesus worked for a living. Jesus paid taxes. He knew what we go through in life, and He suffered. We know He knew all about rejection and being turned aside and having His reputation marred by others. He knew all about those things, but He was willing to do it because He loved us. 
Because Jesus loved us. That's how willing, how far God was willing to go to reach fallen man. You think about the level he was willing to condescend to reach to where we are. His name should be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. It says Jesus took on the form of a servant, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and was obedient even to death on the cross. It truly is amazing when you think about the depths that the Lord went to for mankind. You might wonder, well, why a manger? If God had to come as a human being, and if he had to come as a baby, why in the world would he be born in a manger? Couldn't God have provided a better birthplace for his son? Well, certainly he could have, but everything God does is intentional and for a reason. You know, Matthew tells us where Jesus was to be born, but Luke tells us the place in which he was born. Tells us that he was laid in a manger. A manger is literally a feeding trough for animals located inside of a stable. I think sometimes we have often have a romanticized view of what that stable must have looked like. You can thank Hallmark for that. But you see these depictions often of this pristine environment. There's usually a heavenly glow shining in this manger. Everything is spotless. Mary looks like she just came from the spa. And they're smiling, and everybody's happy. Even the animals are smiling. Some even have halos above their heads. I don't think that's an accurate picture of what it was like in that stable. I've been in a stable. I've been on a dairy farm. I've walked to the place where they hold those animals, those stalls. It's filthy. There's flies. It smells. It's unsanitary. Last place you'd ever want any baby to be born, especially your own child. God chose that place. It wasn't on purpose. It wasn't random. God did it for a reason because he wanted to send a message. God's willing to go to any length. He's willing to condescend to the lowest place to reach humanity. It doesn't matter how obscure. It doesn't matter how unsanitary, how unattractive, how unsophisticated, how filthy it may be. If there's room for Jesus, that's where Jesus will go. You know, it says, after Mary bought forth Jesus, she wrapped them in swallowing clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The only place in the entire town that had room for Jesus was the most humblest place of all. The Bible tells us Jesus dwells among the humble and the lowly. He makes his presence and his location known to those who were humble. Isaiah 57:15 says this, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the spirit of the contrite ones. There's two places God dwells. He dwells in the high and the holy place, and he dwells in the hearts of the humble and the lowly. You know, it's been said, you can be way too big for God, but you can never be too small. God honors humility. Really, that's what the whole Christmas story is about. It's one of humility. 
I'll share a little poem with you. It's an untitled poem, but again, I think it kind of encapsulates the whole message of Christmas. The Savior who sprang from a virgin's womb would be nailed to a cross and placed in a tomb. As Satan thought he had sealed Christ's doom, as his closest followers were filled with gloom, he arose three days later and he looks for a room. You know, the tomb could not hold Jesus. The cradle was just a resting place, a temporary place for Jesus to be born. The Lord's looking for a place where his spirit and his presence can dwell. The Bible says it's not a temple made by hands. Listen to what Revelation 3.20 says. This is Jesus' own words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. You can receive the greatest gift of all this morning. You can have the presence of the living God dwelling within your heart this morning. You know, the Lord has a wonderful gift exchange program. It tells us in Isaiah, it says, Jesus came to give beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness, victory instead of defeat, spiritual life in place of death. You can have this in your heart this very morning. If Jesus is knocking on your heart, all you have to do is open the door. The question is, is there room in your heart? You have to make room in your heart for Jesus. He won't force himself in. Jesus won't share his glory with another. He's not looking for a roommate. He wants your heart, your whole heart. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. But if you're willing to open your heart and make him the Lord of your life, the Lord will bless you. He'll save you. He'll transform your life. This very morning, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. But you have to receive that gift that he offers. But the best news of all is if you do, or if you have, we'll be prepared for his arrival the next time he comes. You know, tragically, so many missed Christ's arrival the first time. And sadly, tragically, so many will miss it the second time he comes. But you can be ready to receive the Lord that second time when he comes. You can invite the Lord into your heart. You can have his presence and his spirit dwelling in your heart and life. If you surrender your life to Jesus and you're living a victorious Christian life, you'll be ready when the Lord returns. You know, it says that he's coming the second time without sin unto salvation. and He's coming for those that are looking for him. You know, he came the first time to rescue sinners. The next time he comes, he's coming to rescue the redeemed. Those that have made room in their hearts for Jesus. You can have that hope in your heart this morning. If you haven't received Christ, you can just ask him in. Just humble yourself, open your heart to the Lord. He'll come in. He'll change your life. He'll transform you. He'll give you that hope of heaven. And you can leave this place this morning with the greatest treasure in all the world. You can have salvation down in your soul. If you need to draw closer to the Lord, come seek the Lord. 
God is there. He's the burden bearer. The Lord will lift that burden. God will help you. If you need to be sanctified, Jesus suffered without the gate. Shed his blood that you might be sanctified. If you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus will give you that power to uh, witness for the Lord, to be a testimony to him, whatever you need. God is here. He's the giver of all good things, and he wants to give you eternal life today. Let's sing 478. These altars are open.